So, um, uh, I don't have a formal talk prepared tonight. I was actually thinking I would come and do questions and answers. But um, somebody asked me to talk about relationship. And so I thought I would talk a little about relationship, just improvise a bit, think about it with you, contemplate it with you, and then open it up, see, see where I get to, and then see where we go from there. And I thought I would start by um, actually telling you a story about our good friends Kitty Sarah and Tanisara. And many of you have heard this story, but many of you haven't. And if you'll see the the cover article here on the new newsletter, which is called Gratitude, Service, and the Dharma, is written by our friend Tanisara. And Tanisara is a woman, Kitty Sarah is a man, and they were monastics for many years. Um, actually, Tanisara was one of the first ordained women in the West. Uh, one of the f there were four women ordained in Ajahn Chah's tradition, and she was one of the first four ordained in, in England. And um, she practiced as a nun for 12 years. And Kitty Sarrow um, um, was a monk in that tradition for 15 years. And they had very kind of diverse background. Kitty Sarrow, his parents... His mother was Southern Baptist. His mother was Southern Baptist, and his father was New York Jewish, which is not a not the usual pairing. <laughs> and he grew up in Tennessee, and he was like a, a world-class athlete in high school. He told me he used to do 500 push-ups a day. And if you meet Kitty Sarah now, you wouldn't know that. Right? He, he's a kind of a like I'm a little skinny guy, he's a little skinnier guy than me. And, um, and he was very bright. He, he was whatever it was. I think he went, I can't remember. He went, pardon? No, I know that. I was just trying to figure out where he went, if he went to Yale or Harvard. Pardon? Princeton. Princeton, okay. And graduated very high. And then was a Rhodes Scholar, went to England, somehow went to Thailand, met Ajahn Chah, and basically ran off with him. Uh, and that, that was the end of his career, both in athletics and education. And he became a monk, and then ended up in England practicing with Ajahn Sumedho. And Tanisara, who was born in e Irish in England, like kind of working class Irish in England, and some and was involved in the hippie era, psychedelic uh, flavor. Um, <laughs> um, also ended up in oh, Ajahn Chah came to England and she met him and it changed her life. And then she went to Thailand and started practicing and ended up ordaining, I believe, in England, may, maybe in in Thailand, but I think in England. And then was a None. And so they were living at the same monastery and they fell in love. Now, it's not the usual kind of falling in love, right? If you're a monk and a nun, because monks and nuns are totally celibate and they were totally respectful of their vows. They told me that they fell in love without having ever touched 
and barely even talked to each other because the monks and the nuns were separate mostly. But something happened for them, something kind of inexplicable. Uh, later they put it, they said, we had an arranged marriage, we just don't know who arranged it. <laughs> you know, it was some... But, and both of them had practiced very deeply and were very respected in the monastic world that they lived in. And it was, it was a little shocking when they decided to, as it's put traditionally, disrobe and leave the monastery. And, but they did. And, and I believe it speaks to the power of practice at a certain point to transcend form. The power of practice to transcend form. Here they'd given their lives to the monastic tradition and really believed they would spend their lives in the monastic tradition. But they also had practiced to the point where they certain they had a deep, deep trust of themselves. A very deep trust of what was true for them, even if it, they didn't want it to be true. It wasn't like they were looking for somebody, right? Like we all might have been looking for someone, but they weren't. But something happened and they trusted it and they left. And it was actually very hard for them at first. They had no money. They had no jobs. They had no resume, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not like, well, where have you been working? Well, I've been, you know, bowing and chanting and <laughs> meditating, you know. Oh, great. We'll hire you right away. <laughs> um, but they left and they ended up traveling a little teaching. They ended up in South Africa. And I met them three years after they left the monastery. And I was really intrigued by them. They, had, they came, this was, this is really a while ago now. It must be 15 years ago. Can we get the ping down a little out of this? Wait, wait maybe I'll just lower it. Let's see. How's that, how's that work? Is that a little better? Okay. Some people, yes, no. That's how it always is. Um, I was, they came to my teacher training and Jack Cornfield asked them to tell their story, which they did. I think it's okay, John Paul. Okay, you can fool with it a little if you want. Um, and so they did, and I was really intrigued. And I was intrigued because I think relationship is one of the most important areas of practice for us as lay people. That I think this is a really important area, and I'm talking about intimate relationship, family, friendships, working relationship, community, and, and the greater sense of relationship, which really then includes everybody. But it's a very, uh, often for people who practice the Dharma and practice seriously, this is one of the areas that can often be difficult can often be hard. So I remember I got to, you know, I got to talk to Kitty Sarah a while and after a while I said to him, so, you know, tell me, how is it to practice in relationship? How is it for you after having been a monastic for so long? 
and he's got this southern draw, which I can't quite imitate, but he said, well, you know, it's like having two people under one robe. <laughs> and and that, you know, I almost was going to explain that before I said it, but because um, people sometimes laugh, but if you really listen to it, it's like having two people under one robe. Like he knew how to practice very seriously as a monastic. And now what he was suggesting was, oh, now it's just the robe gets bigger and includes this other person. The same mindfulness, the same presence, the same wakefulness, the same loving kindness and compassion, the same sense of discernment and and clear seeing that he'd cultivated under that robe now there were two people under that robe. And I, I think that's a really beautiful understanding of what it means to practice in relationship. That we cultivate these qualities of heart and mind that the Buddha suggests lead to awakening. But we don't just cultivate them for ourselves. We start with ourselves and then we begin to expand that capacity we begin to expand our capacity to be mindful not only of ourselves but of someone else to be kind not only of our, to ourselves but to others to be awake to the um, preciousness of each person of each being that we we get to know just by being mindful of this person who's sitting in our seat we begin here but we don't end here And it's really maybe the bigger extension of what Kitty Saro said. It was in the poem by Ryokan. He said, Oh, that my priest's robe, Ryokan was a great Zen teacher, poet. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the, flo- all the suffering people in this floating world. That our mindfulness begins here, our practice begins here, it doesn't end here. So, now in the monastic tradition, they deal with relationship also but the relationships are a little more prescribed. There's a lot of structure in the relationship that helps to relate in a way that's um, non-harming, that's kind, that has a sense of camaraderie and unification. Um, People are taking on similar Uh, take on a similar path, similar values, similar vows, and then enact them together. And then there's relationship within that. Here, as lay people, we have more, we don't have, it's not as prescribed in the same way. It's, It's actually a lot more complex, our relationship, for many, many, many different reasons. You know, if, if they're intimate relationship, if they're sexual relationship, that, that brings a whole level of complexity that the monastic community basically says, we'd rather not deal with that in the service of our awakening. For us, we're going to put that aside 
and it's and they they work with what I call uh, erotic celibacy. Erotic celibacy. In other words, it doesn't mean their sexuality is gone or dead. It's actually not at all. But they've they've put they've enacted a certain form. They've they've um, they've um, taken a certain form in which they enact their sexuality in a celibate way. And that's a beautiful practice, if that's your practice, if you're called in that way. Um, but most lay people, that's not what they're doing. You know, we may be celibate a lot of the time, <laughs> but it's not our vow, right? And when we're in intimate relationship and the relationships are sexual, it's much more complex. Or we're in friendships, and the friendships are more complex because we have diverse values. We're not just, all our friends aren't just Buddhists. In fact, we may not even be Buddhist if you're here. You know, that doesn't mean you're a Buddhist because you're here. And even if you are, you may have different levels of commitment or value, and that's fine, actually. We don't ask our friends, oh, you have to be just like us. That's, that's not what we're generally as lay people. We like to have some similarity in value, but, um, but it's not as uniform as you'll find, let's say, if you're in a monastic tradition. And so we have friendships where there might be different values around money or different values around sexuality, even if we're not interacting together sexually. Or there might be different values around uh, politics or many different things. And so we're, and then of course, um, family. These are relationships we're not even choosing, you know, at least our family of origin, or at least we don't remember choosing, you know, who knows how, how it all happens. Either way, we find ourselves with these people where a lot of the time we think, how did I end up with these people? Or, these are my people? You know, it's like, now these people feel more like my people. These people I barely know, you know, who are my friends, feel much more like my people and my family. But we have families in relationship. And so that's very complex to, to live in, in and with the world of family. And then, of course, work relationships are very uh, uh, interesting. I'm being polite here. But, um, you know, depending on where you are in the, in the power dynamic of the work relationship, if they're equal, if you're the boss or you're the worker or where you are in the corporation or, where, or in the hospital or wherever you might be. I guess the hospitals and corporations, same thing these days, pretty much. Um, now, the reason why I think relationship is really uh, an important part of practice, well, I'll say it this way, I'll bring in some Dharma context, which I've often used here, from Dogen. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. So this is the context of our practice. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. So to begin to study, who are we? What are we? 
Who, who, do, who are we taking ourselves to be? What are we taking ourselves to be? And so a lot of people come to meditation practice with that question. You know, who are we? What are we? And they come and sit, we come and sit, and we study the self. And even, even in a sitting like tonight, you get to see how the self functions. Oh, the mind thinks, thinks whatever it wants most of the time. Won't even listen to us at all. Or we have all these feelings that might come, even when we don't want them. Or we may want certain feelings and they don't come at all. Or we may want certain experiences when we come to sit like, oh, I'm going to have a quiet mind and an open heart. Right? That's a lot the advertisement these days. Come and quiet your mind, open your heart, come to Spirit Rock. You know, it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice ideal and that, that, that'll happen long term. But it might not happen in your Sunday night sitting, right? So then we come and we learn how to be with ourselves without having to push away any experience and without having to grasp onto any experience. And we start to find the freedom that's not dependent on having a certain kind of experience. And so that can start to happen here in our weekly sitting, in our daily sitting, and then going on retreat. Sometimes people often have a big sense of opening, of freedom, of ease. Even on a five-day retreat, that'll happen. And people are like, oh, great, I've got it for a while. What'll often happen at the end of a five-day retreat, people feel really open, really actually peaceful and loving and really it, it works, it works. And then they start relating. <laughs> and it's like, oh shit, who's talking now? I thought that person was, I thought I was free, right? And all of a sudden I'm wanting to be seen a certain way or heard a certain way or this person isn't paying attention to me and I don't like that and I'm not going to talk to them anymore and let me find an enlightened person like me to talk to. And, you know, and all of a sudden we see the self again, only in some sense more pronounced. In other words, the, the, the point I'm in a roundabout way trying to make is that relationship will highlight the sense of self. Partly because, and we know this from modern psychology, the sense of self is created in relationship. You know, to mother, or the mothering figure or figures, the parental figures and the, the child. That's how the sense of self is created in those interactions. And so to relate, to interact, will often re-stimulate not only our sense of self, but our most, our least mature sense of self, actually. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because we want to see that, right? To study the Buddha way is to study the self. All the various selves that we have. Because if we don't see them, if we're not aware of the sense of self, it'll generally function unconsciously. And so we want to make it conscious, not because it's bad, not because it's wrong, because we don't need to be bound to it. We can see it for what it is. It's a contingent arising based on conditions. And so to study the Buddha ways, to study the self, to study the self 
is to forget the self. It's a poetic Zen way to say, to let go of the self or relax the sense of self. Um, and so relationship is a, is a really, is a certain kind of crucible to study the self. And it's a fire. And it, it's really true of many kinds of relationship. My wife and I, when we teach together, we can teach a whole week on emptiness. This is a true story. We taught in, in Colorado, maybe it was four days, about emptiness. And at the end, all the questions were about our relationship, right? It was like, it's like, well, how is it for you two? And is it really great because you're both practitioners? And, and we're like, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. It is, it is, it actually, the first thing that I say is relationship is dukkha. And dukkha, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a word, a very important word in Buddhism. It means suffering. But it doesn't mean, it, it, means, it means the breadth of suffering, from the worst suffering in the world to just the ordinary, everyday suffering of your partner doesn't put the lid back on the top when they're done with the pot. That's dukkha also. Or, you know, or your partner snores, you know, and you're trying to sleep. That's dukkha. Or, let's see, that's about all I know. <laughs> so, and it doesn't mean relationship isn't also sukha, which is happiness, and there's a beauty to relationships. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we think relationship is, this, this is another thing I tell story. My wife and I, after we got married, I hadn't wanted to get married originally. I'd been married. So, and she wanted to get married. And I was like, nope, been there, you know, I'm not interested. And she was like, you know, I want to get married. And we, and we actually did some therapy about it. It was, it was really helpful. And what I saw in the therapy is I had a certain identity of someone who'd been married and it hadn't been, you know, it ended in divorce and I was like, didn't ever want that to happen again. And as that became more conscious, I became more awake to it, that identity fell away. And I felt like, oh, of course I'll marry you, actually. You know, my heart just opened and I just like, oh, I'm happy, I love you, I want to marry you. You know, and that lasted for a while. <laughs> 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 enough so that I proposed <laughs> and then <laughs> and, um, and then actually the fear came back again at some point but I worked with it and I'm very happy we got married actually but after about a f I don't know three weeks six weeks nine weeks she came up to me she said after we got married she said this is not making me happy <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> and she said, you know, I've done so much practice, and yet I really believed, oh, this was going to make, if I got married, I would just be happy. And, and we have these kind of illusions. And it's good, and I know this doesn't sound a little paradoxical, but it's good to be disillusioned. 
It's good to be disillusioned because if we, if we think our illusions will carry us, we'll suffer. But if we're willing to see what's true, we can work with anything, actually. We can work with anything. It's one of the great promises of the Dharma. If we're willing to be with what's true, it's workable. We may not know how it's workable or why it's workable, but I, I really believe that and it's truly been my experience. If we're willing to see what's true, even if it's very difficult, very painful, it's workable. I'll actually give you an example of somebody who called me recently. Been married 25 years and the person, one of the people had an affair and the person who was calling me had been on a retreat with me recently and said, how do I deal with this from a Dharma perspective? And basically I said, well, well how's it been? How have you been dealing with it? And she said, well, you know, uh, I was really upset, but I just felt like what's happening? And I stayed with my anger at first, and then I felt hurt, and then I stayed with that. And then I was like, well, I love this person. What's going on? And that it, it, it's, it, it really was shocking to her partner that she just didn't attack. That she had the wherewithal to stay present, say, I'm hurt, I'm angry, but what is going on? Where are you at? And what do you want? And where do we go from here? And there was a maturity, actually a really amazing maturity that I heard. And she said too, she said, I can't believe how I'm acting. I can't believe I'm not reacting. But she wasn't. And, you know, and it doesn't mean it's easy, and it's not easy what's happening for them, but it's workable. And we don't know what will happen. But it doesn't mean that we have to abandon our values of clarity, of kindness, of wakefulness, of authenticity, and work with the selves that arise in any situation. Let's see if I can get back on track here. Oh, my wife and yeah. The, the. So um, I'm not sure where I was headed, but I know I want to say a couple more things, which is about um, a relationship is dukkha. It's true of all relationship. All relationship inherent in it has some dukkha in it because human life inherently has dukkha in it. It has suffering. One of the difficulties of friendship, of good friendship, is that they change. Friendships change. Have you noticed that? I, I grew up and in my 20s and 30s I had three really, 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 really close friends. I mean, just great friends. And just imagined we would be friends forever, for the rest of our lives. And some of us are, and some of us aren't. That at a certain point, and this wasn't anybody's fault, we grew apart in different ways, even though we'd been so close and our values had been so close. But as we, as we continued to mature, we started to differentiate in a way that's actually quite natural for people. We don't, we don't stay the same. We're all changing. And at different times, certain friendships are more to the foreground than others. And, um, and if we try to hold on to people, that's dukkha. That's real dukkha. 
if we if we try to deny what's true as things change in relationship it's dukkha one of my friendships and this is what was asked about was that it was actually a really painful ending we a friend of mine and I got in a disagreement fight of some kind and we worked to resolve it but it actually never it never resolved it never resolved where we could con- really continue the friendship after many, many years of very close friendship. And to be honest, I'm still sad about it that that happened. But there, it just didn't have the whatever, the karma, so that it could succeed or, or re- remend the rift that had happened. <coughs> Um, and so, and and I both feel sad about it, but I don't feel any antipathy. I think that's the right word. Is that the right word? Antipathy. A little louder. Antipathy. Antipathy. Thank you. I knew I didn't have it quite right. Antipathy. I don't feel any. Uh, I'm not. I don't feel at all antagonistic towards my friend or any leftover um, uh, anger or ill will. I actually feel my love for him. But the friendship never could, it just couldn't happen again in the same way. Sometimes they can come together. I'll give you a more public example, which is two of my teachers at a certain point had a rift. And they really, and it was again, it was the same flavor of of a certain kind of, they were um, individuating in different ways. And this happens at different ages and different times with friendships. It's actually a normal part of human development. And so they, and this is a really, I think it's fine to say this is Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein. And I used to go, when I was first sitting, I would go on these retreats with Jack and Joseph and Sharon. And those, that would be the teacher, Sharon Salzberg. It was great to sit with the three of them. Great talks, great dharma, and not big crowds yet. And, and, um, and for a number of years I sat with them. And then one year I went to the retreat and Joseph and Sharon weren't there anymore. And Jack and Joseph basically weren't teaching together anymore. And they had differences of opinion and differences of, of seeing the dharma and how they wanted to talk. And they had grown apart. And it was, it was actually probably hardest for, for their students, really, because we were like, whoa, what happened? You know, we didn't know. And of course, nobody talked about anything back then. There was like a Dharma thing. You don't talk about relationship. <laughs> we're, hopefully, we're changing that. But um, um, yeah, it was, it was actually painful because, you know, at least personally, I loved both of them. And they were both my teachers. And then especially as I got backstage in the Dharma scene and heard more about it, you know, I really heard the differences and disagreement. And then, and then at a certain point, there was a reconciliation. The reconciliation it was like another stage of maturity because they didn't end up, and they actually rarely teach together these days, although they do a little bit. But they didn't need, you know, whatever had, they needed to go apart, they didn't need to do that anymore. They were each 
kind of established at the next level of who they were, their unfoldment, and then they could apologize for whatever was difficult and go on. And they're actually close friends, really colleagues, totally. But I'm but the relationship is dukkha. What that means is if we think they're going to last forever, they won't. Even the best relationship. I mean, I'm really happy in my marriage. It won't last forever. One of us is going to die. Even if we don't ever separate before then, that will happen. You know, I guess we could die together in a car crash. That's possible, but, you know, probably not. Or friendships. Maybe they'll last for our whole life, but we don't know. And so, on some level, this doesn't sound so good to people, right? This sounds bad. Well, maybe, but the truth is better than illusion. The truth is better than illusion. And so, if we see that, if we see that they, they, sometimes relationships have to end, we can be a little more peaceful with that truth. But also, if we know that relationships will end, Maybe we can more appreciate them when they're happening. Maybe we can more appreciate the friendships we have now or the, even the working relationships we have now that are good and helpful and skillful and supportive. Maybe we can appreciate the Dharma relationships we have now. You know, one of the things about doing this group for 15 years is, you know, basically I've come every Sunday night that I'm in town for 15 years now. And a lot of people come and go. And it's fine, it's just the way it is. People come, they love the Dharma, and they move. And they may be involved with the group, and really, you know, they're great people, but it, it just, that's not the nature of relationship. Things change. Or people die. Or people have babies and then they're kind of swept up in that for a while. Or some, or they, they start here and then some other teaching in the Dharma calls them and they go. Maybe they go into Tibetan Buddhism for a while or Zen or something like that. And that's all fine. That's how it is. But if I were to think, oh, everybody who comes here should stay, then you'd have to be here regularly like I would, wouldn't you? <laughs> It just wouldn't be the truth. It wouldn't be realistic. It would be, a, it would be real dukkha as opposed to everyday dukkha. I'm making this funny distinction between um, the suffering caused by illusion rather than just the ordinary suffering of everyday life, of reality. So those are a lot of thoughts about relationship that I have. Um, yeah. So we have a few minutes. Any comments or questions or reactions or please. So everyday dukkha, everyday dukkha. So it's put this way in Buddhism. There are two kinds of suffering. 
There's suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to less suffering. The suffering that leads to less suffering is everyday suffering and facing it squarely. Right? The su- that, that we're going to age or be ill or die. This is just ordinary human suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering is also called the second arrow. It's like, oh, we get... Well, wait, let me, I'll just stay with the first metaphor. So, so, so if we, if we um, pretend we're not going to get sick or age and we act like that, that's real suffering. See, that's extra suffering. That's suffering that leads to more suffering. If we're not willing to turn towards, learn how to stand under or understand suffering, we will suffer more. If we learn, if we use the skills of meditation, the skills that Buddha gave us from the Eightfold Noble Path of how to live a life that's grounded in the Dharma, that gives us the capacities to be mindful and present and awake and centered so that we can fairly we can face suffering squarely then we will have then we will be able to find our freedom through suffering rather than adding to suffering that's a little bit the way I'm thinking about it the other metaphor that's used in Buddhism is the second arrow and the Buddha tells a story about a guy who got shot by an arrow and he said, would it make sense if when the doctor came, if the uh, man said, well, who shot the arrow and who made the arrow and how, how far did the arrow travel before it got here? He said, he said, that would be like adding a second arrow. It would just be more suffering. You don't need to know that. It doesn't help. But if you just work with the arrow that's there, that's enough. Work with the suffering that's here, the immediate suffering. And so to work with the immediacy of suffering means to turn towards it. See, what's the truth of our suffering? Or how is the self showing up in a way that is suffering? When a relationship doesn't go the way we want, what is that? Instead of just saying, oh, it's all that person's fault and they just don't know how to relate. They should do a communications class. They should do nonviolent communication. <laughs> Those jerks, right? <laughs> well, you know, maybe it'd be helpful if everybody did nonviolent communication, but in fact, we study the Buddha way by studying ourselves, by studying our reactions. And there's a bigger context even to what I've said so far about relationship, which is we live in a world of relatedness. Our world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. How are we going to relate to all the suffering people in this floating world? Which includes us, but includes every country, every culture, every people now on the planet. And you know, we have a, we have a, a, a very fortunate circumstance here in America, actually. We have a certain degree of wealth and uh, provisions so that we have some time to practice. And I don't mean wealth, you know, the super wealthy. I mean, we have a we have enough. Many people have enough to practice. 
And we also have some kind of relative freedom, whatever the problems are, which I'm not trying to undercut, but what I'm suggesting is we have a crucible here in our own country, uh, especially given the heritage of America, the diversity of America, the immigrant population that we are as Americans, to learn how to practice together in our diversity, in our different colors and religions and creeds and cultures that we have. I believe, and this is more personal, Eugene, I believe we have an opportunity to learn how to practice that could be a benefit to the whole world because the whole world is getting so small that we have to learn how to relate and how to be in relationship with everybody, not just the people closest to us because everybody is getting closer and closer to us. And we, we feel it, we know it, it's happening, and it's true, and it's not a bad thing. It's an opportunity, and I, it's a little bit idealistic, but I don't mind being a little bit idealistic. It's an opportunity to change the, the face of the earth. And you know, we don't, we tend to think a little bit small and just, you know, study the Buddha way, study the self and, you know, get enlightened and that that's a really good thing for the whole world. But in fact, the Buddha had a great imagination. He had a great um, vision of his ideal of awakening and he followed that ideal until it happened. His ideal was such that people told him it couldn't happen and he didn't believe them. So if you have any sense of this possibility, don't let anybody dissuade you of seeing what we can do to change the way the whole world is. Never know when that can happen. It can start here with our practice here, but it doesn't have to end here. It can change the whole world. So maybe that's a good place to stop for today. Let's sit for a moment. 